1: Well, today is going to be a fun show. We are um, only days away from Valentine's Day, and that makes everybody nervous. Um, if they don't have a Valentine, they want to try to get one before February 14th. If they do have a Valentine, sometimes people want to get rid of them before February 14th. Whatever, whatever your situation is. But this approaching uh, Valentine's Day, Um, does make people nervous. So, today we're going to be doing a show called What's Love Got to Do With It? Pimp Game Series Author Tells All. Yes, you heard that right. Pimp Game Series Author Tells All. Um, With uh, COVID coming and turning the world of love and romance and dating and sex on its ear, I thought it might be fun this Valentine's Day to take another look at these topics. <laughs> and with me to to do that for you today is Mickey Royal, um, a.k.a. Mikhail Sharif. Um, he is a former uh, gangster, drug dealer, legendary pimp, paid enforcer, uh, for Italians, Russians, Mexicans below the border, he's actually speaking to us today from Mexico. So um, if he gets cut off, he's gonna, we're gonna get him back on right away. He's a pornographer and a best-selling author. His uh, five game, five books so far are the Pimp Game Instructional Guide, the Pimp Game Secrets of Mind Manipulation, Along for the Ride, Pimping Ain't Easy, but somebody's gonna do it. And I'm leaving you for a white woman, probably his most controversial book. He's been interviewed by National Geographic because he's the real deal in terms of his having lived these lives, not just talking about it from um, the outside. Um, we're going to start with his talking about his life, how he. When I was telling him this before we started, he said, "Which life? I've lived so many lives. Uh, this is true." Um. But I want to start, you know, as a psychiatrist, uh, of course, I'm interested in in childhood um, and, uh, you know, how, because of that, determining, really, where somebody goes for the rest of their lives. And um, and so we're going to start with that when he was apparently first detained at age five for attempted murder in a daycare, then arrested for attempted murder, murder in his early 20s in Tennessee, Attempted murder in his early 40s in L.A. He was arrested in Tijuana for narcotics trafficking as well as L.A. He was married to a former porn star, Elizabeth Sweet, a.k.a. Yogi. Um, She was married. She was uh, the founder. She was the former girlfriend of the founder of the Crips gang. And then after his divorce, he was or is currently engaged to a former porn star, Cheyenne Fox, for 15 years, um, very colorful life, uh, <laughs> Mickey. Um, that's sort of an understatement. And um, yeah. so needless to say, you can, um, you know, you can tell us about the dark side, and uh, you know, something that something that people don't get to hear about every day. So, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you. It's an honor and a privilege to be here.
1: Well, let's... So, um, would you like to... Would I like what?
2: Would you like to clear up the five-year-old story?
1: Yes, let's start there. That no, sounds very yeah. interesting.
2: <laughs> okay, I was at daycare, and it was. I remember it like it was yesterday. It was a girl named Chantel. She yeah, had two pigtails. She was sitting on a swing in the backyard because it was a home daycare, and it was one of those swing sets that if you swing too high, the back of it comes up, so we were just kind of swinging low. And then I was sitting next to her, trying to talk to her, flirt with her. Yeah, it starts early. And uh, a guy named Damon. I, I remember as he was as- yesterday, he had saggy eyes in the corner. I could pick him out of a lineup today. And that was uh, 45 years ago. And uh, he had a-, a Robin, like a Batman and Robin. And he kept playing with his Robin. He wanted to show it to me. I wasn't studying him. I, was- I wasn't paying attention to him. I was looking at the girl. He came over there. He bit me on my chest with his hands behind his back. And that was shocking because who bites another human being? He bit me on my chest real hard to where it made a real mark, and I started screaming. Then he threw me out of the swing on my face, sat in the swing, and started swinging with Chantel. She didn't budge. She didn't say a thing. So I got up crying in shock. I ran to the, the yard worker who was there. like I think it was a daycare lady's daughter or something. I told her what happened. And I figured she'd give me some justice, like, you know, now he's going to get it. But back then it was corporal punishment stuff. So He's going to get a spanking. And she just told me to go inside and lay down. And I remember thinking, I did the right thing, but I got punished because I don't get to play in the yard now. Now I got to go inside and lay down. So the next part of the story, I don't remember. My mother told me the rest of the story. And she said, you don't remember what happened after that, though. I said, no, that was it. I laid down. I remember wetting myself and go hold a wet spot on my pants. She said, that's not what happened. She said, that happened, but she said, when, when the other kids came in from that, you went under the kitchen counter, grabbed a hammer, and stood over him and started smashing him in the face with it. One of those um, regular hammers, like Black & Decker or something. I said, I don't remember doing that. She said, yeah, and the police were called. And they were going to arrest you. And the other police was like, we can't arrest a five-year-old. what?'" So the other kid's parents, we're saying, well, she told him to do that. An adult had to tell him to do that. And my mother said, I just got here. Sure. My father was still at work. He didn't find out about this until, like, late at night. And it's, um, she said, how can I tell him to do this? I just got here. It's already been done. He said, well, how did he get in his mind? And she said, I don't know. He did what he did. So they were going to charge her. They didn't. They were going to charge me. They were just, everybody was in shock because even the police because they're like, this never happened before. What do we do? We don't even have a loan of books or something like this. What do we do? So I kind of like was asked to leave. But that was the same daycare that I wrote my first play at about um, that scene. Never- what they call it, you know, the uh, three wise men. And so they called me back up there. And after about a month, I was able to come back. And, you know, we did the play. And I have pictures of it on my Facebook page. And I gave a speech, the, you know, best student speech. But, yeah. That that's what happened, but his face was like severely damaged, from what she tells me. I said I don't have no recollection that. All I remember is going in there, having to lay down and crying myself to sleep. I said that's all I remember. But so she told me the rest of the story maybe about five years ago. I said, I never knew that. But that's that Do story. you
1: do you know whatever happened to the this other kid?
2: Mm-mm. That was that was before we entered uh first grade. That was that was. Yeah, you know, was, here. I, you
1: know that. But you know it's interesting I have no idea. because when you think of, when you think about like you said you did the right thing, which you did, um, and then you got punished for it. Um, that may well have. Have you ever thought about how that may well have affected you for the rest of your life? How doing the right thing brings oh, punishment. Oh yeah. Um,
2: it was there's other incidents like that. I just did five and a half years prison time. Because uh, three guys and two girls beat up a girl I know over a parking space. And she called me. And I showed up. And that's what the last attempted at murder charge was. It was three counts. But, you know, luckily no one died. Knocked on what well, I'm here. If they had, I'd be in there forever. Because <laughs> the police were there like 30 <laughs> seconds later. I didn't have much time. So if you guys had been a minute late, it would have been a different charge. But it was what it was. But, yeah, I thought about that a lot. Um, I spent quite a bit of time in Psychiatrist office over the years. So we've we uh-huh. dealt, God, I can't say the word. I have 15 stitches in my mouth from an assassination attempt. So certain words I can't pronounce anymore, but, you know, practice so yeah. substitute of the word. So you would give me, like, a certain words sometimes.
1: Someone, someone tried to hmm? assassinate you? Is that what, for what?
2: Oh, yes, several, several times, uh, but I'm still here. But, you know, that was in prison. At uh, Wasco State Prison, Uh I did some certain things
1: Uh uh,
2: to high-ranking members of another group I wasn't supposed to. Well, years later, because I went to Chino Prison after that, so now I'm at a halfway house, court-ordered, and we have a rule what happens in prison stays in prison. When you get out, you go with your family, you resume your life or whatever that was on the street. But, you know, they want to get back. I had no idea. So he came to me in my bunk while I was laying down asleep, and he was trying to stab me in the temple with knife pick. But when he grabbed my throat, of course, I'm trying to sleep, So I turned my head and looked up and it came crashing in my face and my mouth. I got 11. I got four stitches on the outside, 11 in my mouth. It was like my face. My teeth looked like a jack-o'-lantern because it broke a lot. And it went under my tongue, severed that. And I had to catch the train to the hospital because if I tell them what happened, that's the interaction with a policeman. And I could violate my parole and I could have gone back to 18 more months. So I was like, no, I don't know what happened. I fell on the nail. You know, but that's the truth uh-huh. of what happened. I never told the truth of what happened till after I got off parole. Uh-huh. So it well, affects my speech, watched... you know. You what? I think it affects um, the speech. Let me I
1: just speech. say. I... Um, oh, uh-huh. That's why you speak that way. Okay, I got it. Um, I, I looked at your website and um, watched the various you... videos. They were very interesting. And um, in one of them, you talked about, like, how... Um, you and your brother ended up um, at an early age. You were teenagers. You were 13, I think, and he was 16. Um, and you ended up on the street or in the life, as you called it, um, because your mother died of cancer and your father divorced her before she died and had a whole other family. And you two were on your own.
2: Oh no, She didn't die of cancer. She got cancer. She survived, yes. she still alive today, but she was bedridden, and I re- really didn't see her. I went to go stay with my aunt and uncle, and whenever I saw my mother for years, she was always in a hospital bed with those rails on it. And because she was under radiation, she wanted grandchildren so bad, and she thought it would make me sterile, so I had to look at her through glass. My auntie, she wasn't having any more children. That's her older sister. She was going and hug her, but I couldn't hug her. I couldn't walk through that room, so I had to look through glass. So it was my auntie, she was a social worker at the time, so she's gone. My uncle self-employed. Uh, he was a sign painter, still is in the seventies and um he was always gone. But basically just me and my brother. So
1: So okay. went outside okay. and those are
2: the people we met.
1: And okay, so she had I didn't realize that. So she hadn't died, but your father what, divorced her because she had cancer and was bedridden?
2: Oh no, she they got divorced first. She got sick moment you know, like years later.
1: He's I divorced because she's
2: okay. a Leo mother and he's a cancer man. And I was doomed from the start.
1: <laughs> 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 no okay. all.
2: That's not going to buzz at all. Neither one of them.
1: All right. So, okay. So in any case, so, and your father, but your father remarried and he didn't want to uh, bring you into his new family.
2: Oh, no, not at all. When my uh, father remarried, I didn't hear from him. He literally just started over. And then he remarried again. My father's been married several times. And he had my twin brothers who are a year younger than my son. And he was married to her, I think, for 21 years. I call her Aunt Jackie, but she's really my stepmother. But that's what my cousins call her, Aunt Jackie. So I just picked up Aunt Jackie, too. But she's really my Mm -hmm. stepmother. But I would say Aunt Jackie, you know, that kind of thing. How's Aunt Jackie doing, you know?
1: Okay, so so then take it from there. When you when the two of you now that we know the more details of the backstory, um, there you were the two of you basically on your own. And how so? How did you get into the life, and how did that lead to you becoming a pimp?
2: Oh gosh, There's so many years between that. But the first thing was flight uh, gangbanging. Growing up in Inglewood, you weren't. I wasn't an official member. But you're around it. Your friends are. You know, your friends' older brothers are. So that's all you're around. That and um, break dancing, And breakdancing got me out of the house. I never wanted to come home because I wasn't that good at it, but I loved watching it and trying to be good at it. So I was, So that, that got me staying out to 11, 12 at night. And it was 1985, and crack was a god, and you saw people buying things. Now, neither one of us so much was poor. Even it was not a poor neighborhood, it was a violent city. You know, gangs, I tell them, gangs in L.A. are not economically related. You know, you'll get shot by a guy in a Rolls Royce. I mean, it has nothing to do with money. So we got involved in the gang culture then because we were out all night, 11, 12. Remember, no supervision, no punishment for coming home late. Nothing like that. Uh-huh. You know, my aunt and uncle were busy. They, they were workaholics. They weren't, you know, caring about stuff like that. So, we got involved in. Well, with the gang life, you got involved in the crack cocaine selling, and that's when the big speakers came and the fancy cars, and you just get sucked in. I tell people it's it's an allure, and that's how I got into the pimp game. From there, I actually joined the Nation of Islam around age fifteen. I don't know about six, yeah, about fifteen, and I stopped everything. I had one thing and one foot out for a while, but then I stopped you know, I was to change my diet and all of that, but I got sucked back into the life really about 18, 19. I never looked back until I was 41. You know, it was just the allure was too strong. Going back into the life, you know, when I got into the pit game, I came in through a, a woman taught me about that. Her name was Gorgeous. And it just kind of sunk in, but I'm, I really have a drug and game background. You'll see me with more big time drug dealers than you will with him. It, that's not really a big thing in Los Angeles. It's a it's a uh, novel, not novelty, but um, delicacy. The main bread and butter of Los Angeles is drugs and gangs. You know, Chicago, their thing mm-hmm. is different. Mm-hmm. But I just kinda, it just kind of fell into my lap. I started around 18 or 19, you know, through a connection to my brother. And after that, that just became who I was. Then when I met Gorgeous, she fine-tuned everything, and we never looked back. And, of course, pornography came after that. That's just a natural ascend or descend, no matter, I you know it depends on how you look at it, but it eventually got to that and full-time sex trafficking, I mean, just a sex trade period, you know, owning a piece of strip club, having half hours, anything to do with the exchange of sex for money, no matter, I mean, uh, swinger party, I did that on a, a citywide level, a voyeur party, it just was all sex related, sex and money related, right down to publishing magazines and things like that.
1: So... Can you well we're gonna to need to take a break in a minute. But when we mm-hmm. come back, um, if you could take us sort of inside your head over those years, um, and you said, you know, you spent a lot of time with psychiatrists, so surely, um, you would have gotten into, you know, how your these early experiences, particularly with your mother, uh and your father for that matter, um, you know, his essentially abandoning you. Um how that played into each of these, um, your, your transition from, you know, I mean, you could see breakdancing and gangs and crack. Okay, that's, that's sort of the neighborhood. But then how you, um, how you went from there to the 18 to 41 part in the life. So we'll talk about that. You know, what, where your mind was at during those years um, before we get into sort of the details of um, what it was like and so on. So we need to take a break. Um, my guest is Mickey Royal, and we are going on into the dark side of um, pimping. <laughs> so stay tuned, and we'll be right back. Follow the Voice America Variety channel on Twitter. Our hosts always have something to say, and we know that you do too. We tweet on today's hot topics, and you're welcome to follow us. Speak up and join in at VoiceAM Variety. That's at Voice AM Variety. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brains firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com.
0: Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman.
1: And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. The show today is What's Love Got to Do With It? Pimp Game series author tells all. So, my guest today is Mickey Royal. We've been hearing uh, some of the highlights of his um, very colorful life. Um, I wanted to... The first question I told him I was going to ask when we come back um, is for him to describe what he meant by, what he means by, that he was in the lights. So, go ahead, Mickey.
2: We use a definite article, the life, because we feel that people in cubicles aren't living. You know, it just means an extreme form of hedonism. Now, that can mean your parties. That can mean uh, you're a freelance this or that or the other. But It's basically a party type of atmosphere. That's the good part of the life. You know, the good part is getting high, you know, having what I call cocaine and champagne lifestyle or jacuzzis and smoothies. Yes, that's all day long, <laughs> but what you don't see about the other party is at night in order to support that hedonistic lifestyle. You have on a leather jacket and leather gloves and you're doing things that people don't even do in movies and you're risking your life for the life to perpetuate the lifestyle because it's addictive and it's highly alluring. So we feel we're the only ones living, you know, so we call it the life that could be drug. We usually hear the life from a woman. That usually means she was either some kind of finger rock star or prostitute escort porn star. It's just, a lot of sex, a lot of drugs, a lot of money, and no responsibility. We call that the life. Now, uh-huh. when you say the game, okay. oh, no, you, you go in and out the game. You're still a basketball player, even if you're retired. You're still a basketball player if you're sitting on the bench, but you're not in the game. Mm. The only ones in the game are the ones on the court. So when mm. people say, I'm not mm. in the game anymore, like, oh, okay, that means he's sitting on the bench or he's retired, but he's still got the life in him. He's not like he quit the game and then went to go work at um Home Depot. That's not what happened. I'm <laughs> sure he's self employed still. Uh-huh. He opened up a fish market or something. You know, and he still goes to the parties and enjoys the good part of the life. The bad part he doesn't have to. He has his fish market. So it's like yeah you know he's still in a life, but he's not in the game. He's not mm-hmm. participating
1: at all. Okay. And um and so that's what you And now you said from, um, so that was when you were from 18 to 41, and you're 50 now, and you've become a tax-paying citizen um, doing porn films and so on. But let's not get ahead of ourselves, because um, let's talk about your book, the the first book that you wrote, The Pimp Game, Instructional Guide. Where did that come from? What, you know, what was, what did you, why did you write that?
2: Okay, around 1997, a lot of documentaries on pimping were coming out, and they weren't saying how that happened. They would just say what they do, what they did. It was some of their personal stories. But there's a whole – it's a psychological game. It's a chess game. It's a mind game. It's a mind-control game. It's using body language. It's using words. Words are your weapons. They didn't break down any of those things. So as I was watching some of these documentaries they were quite entertaining, I was writing – certain notes down like, oh, they missed so much. Oh, that part is not true. And I was watching a lot of uh, pimp movies because I don't watch stuff like that. My favorite movie is Clue from 1985 with Madeleine Kahn. I watch it like every other day. Mm-hmm. So I don't watch what I live. Like my uncle, he was in Vietnam. He doesn't sit around watching Rambo in Full Metal Jacket. He lived it. You know, he watches Charlie yeah. Brown and some things. So that's the kind of stuff I watch. I don't watch gangster yeah. movies. I don't watch pimp, none of that stuff. But the even action is yeah. No. It has to be funny and silly. That's what I like. So, you know, um, so that's, that's basically it, you know.
1: So, okay, so since you were living it as a pimp, um, you were able to write, of course, the instructional guide. So what was that life like, um, not only in terms of day-by-day activities, but like what, were you, what was it like in your mind?
2: It was freedom and power over a world that you handcrafted and created but part of a universe and a universal brotherhood slash sisterhood called the life. So it's like you are planet earth. You're still in the solar system. You're still in rotation. You're still dealing with Jupiter and Saturn, but all the rules of earth are yours and that's never been done before. That's the only way to do that. You know, it was like, it's like if everybody died on earth, except NFL, the NFL thing, well, you're the coach of your team in the NFL and that's the entire world. It's just the inner hell. That's how it felt. The, the other world, if I call it the shadow world because it exists in broad daylight, but we don't see you and you don't see us. It's like we're on a different frequency. But we see each other. Like if a woman is being pimped, I can tell from the first five seconds I walking into a Walmart here with a man. If she's being trafficked and needs help, I can tell within the first five seconds I said, that, that, that woman is being hit. I can tell. I've been doing I did it 30 years. You pick up on certain things immediately. Immediately, in seconds, I, like I was a National Geographic, I was just going down the street with a point in the mouth. I said, yeah, and I was telling them how and the clues that you can tell. was like, I never noticed that. I said, you wouldn't. I said, you wouldn't. You know, the, the customers know. The pimps know. The other processes know. We all know. The hustlers know. The dealers know. Everybody else know. You just walk past them in broad daylight like, like you don't see them unless it's obvious. We pick them right out. We walk right up to them. So, you know, that's, I mean, it's just cool. being in it in a day-to-day life, like, it's just the allure you're caught up in. And it, it was, it's, it's, I, I don't want to sound like this, but it was really a beautiful thing. It was empowering for all involved, but also you pay for that. It's fun being in the army till you get deployed to Vietnam, Till you get deployed to Afghanistan. <laughs> now, all the fun now stops. All the fun you had at the barracks, all the fun you had laughing at the other guy because he couldn't do all the pull-ups. See, the laughter stops now. See, this is the other part of being a soldier and wearing a uniform. And all of you are not coming back alive. But there's also a fun part, the GI Bill, you know, the paycheck, the stopper from port to port with various women having various adventures, taking pictures, eating exotic food, you know. That's the fun part. But there's also another part that you have to take care of, too. So it comes with a good and bad. There's, there's a tale for every coin.
1: Well, you know, you said something really interesting in one of the interviews that you did about how um, that a pimp, it's not just about having, that a, that a person becomes a pimp, not to have power over the women, or not just to have power over the women, but to have power over the men who you are serving with these women. Could you tell us a little bit more about that?
2: Well, it's, it's like a fisherman. You see me sticking a worm on my hook. You see me putting that worm through pain. You see me wrapping it around in an uncomfortable position. And you say, he likes killing worms. No, I don't. I know what fish are attracted to. I'm trying to catch the fish. The worm is just the product in which I'm using. I can use a plastic lure if it works. It's, it's just a lure. So the bottom woman, which is usually about is usually older than he is, she teaches him how to manipulate and control women. His job is to teach his women how to manipulate and control men. You want to learn about a wolf? You ask a wolf. You don't ask a sheep. Your mother can't teach you anything about men. She's never been one a fraction of a second of her life. I've never been an airline pilot. Would you trust me to fly you across the sea? Well, I've never been an airline pilot one second of my life. No, it's better to talk to someone who's been an airline pilot their entire life. So he gets his, whether he wants to admit it or not, he can learn from an older pimp, but the, the nuances, and the fine-tuning, he has to get that from a woman who's been in the game almost as long as he's been alive. And she can tell him everything there is to do. So they kind of run this together. Like when Epstein got arrested, I told him his female counterpart has not been revealed. And no one didn't understand what I was talking about. That he can't accomplish that without a female. I said, how do you get a kid into a car? You don't say, come here, I'm going to snatch you. You offer him candy. They're not going to take candy from me. See, I'm a woman's enemy. I'm her... I'm her... She sees a man, she gets defensive. Already her defenses are up. No, it has to be someone older, someone motherly. I said, she's going to be highly educated, well-dressed. She's going to talk very gently. I said, that's all just a costume. I said, she's not his sidekick. He's her sidekick. I said, but she hasn't been revealed yet. And then later when she got her, hmm. how did you know that? I said, because I lived it 30 years.
1: <laughs> hmm. <laughs> I just, hmm. Mine was in
2: her 40s when I was in my 20s. She taught me. And I taught the ladies who came under me how to deal with men, what they want. The subtle nuances that you can get more from a man crying about your bills and your abusive so-called boyfriend that doesn't exist than you can from just having sex with him. I knew guys used to pay $300, $400 for sex, but they would give $500, 700 1000 Those girls getting those only fans and those cash apps, they're not having sex with those men. They just know how to ask. It's a certain way you ask where a man can't say no. So, like I told one woman, if you're a gold digger, I'm not the gold. Don't waste your time with me. I'm, I, I'm far too versed in this. But what I do is I sell maps, and I sell mining equipment, and I can take you where the gold is, and I can show you how to mine it, and you'll get rich, and I'll get my percentage. But, no, I'm not the gold itself. I'm the tour guide. Hmm. I'm the guy who sells mining equipment. I sell maps. So.
1: Hmm. Very interesting. All right. Um, What about (coughs) the uh, second book, The Pimp Game, Secrets of Mind Manipulation? Well, I guess that's what you were just kind of talking about. What about Along for the Ride? Is that the one where some woman was doing a report on pimping and came along with you?
2: No, that's pimping ain't easy. It's like eight or nine years to separate those two stories. Along for the Ride was in my early 20s, and it talks about how I got officially into the Pimp's game, And it talked about my son, uh, his mom, but how I went from one to the other and how I met Gorgeous and what she told me and what we accomplished together and what we build, built. And that was before the internet, but that's when you had phone sex lines. That's when you had uh, newspapers like the LA Express and the LA Weekly. And I took them from the street to in-call, rented houses that I used to just call my Bordellos or I used to call them stores. You know, I, I had six houses at one time, and I do not have a place to live. I was living, living in a room, sleeping on my mother's couch, or at, like, a cousin's house. I couldn't sleep with them because I would get my own house, rent it, and it had to be certain locations, right off the freeway, or the 101, because primarily we're talking about LAX, Hollywood, that area. Let's see, once I got, like, five girls in the house, that, and they're working out of that house, well, that becomes their house. So then I go get some other place. Well, I'm attracting women like a magnet because each woman that's successful, she's telling her aunts, her cousins, her best friends. So mm. I had more than I knew what to do with. Like I had two ladies come out of town. I said, I have nowhere to put you. Everything is full to capacity. So here you got like 20 plus women in six houses, two houses. I mean, four houses, two uh, condos. And I don't have anywhere to go. I have my clothes at each one of them, little bits of clothes and stuff. But I, don't, I didn't have anywhere where I could just go and relax. I would sneak away to the gym. I would sneak away to the bowling alley. But no, because if I'm staying somewhere, now I got three living with me. Now I got four living with me. Now I got five living with me. It's only four bedrooms. Now I'm cramped. I can't even watch crew. And I'm doing work on my job 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So it becomes their place I have to leave. Because sometimes when customers see certain people, especially like me, my bodyguards and stuff hanging around, they'll get scared and run off. I many of people like 60 years old? And they have a lot to lose. And they don't need this. So, it's like mm-hmm. I was being a escort crow, like a hooper crow, like a scarecrow, a scare, a scare trick. I was scaring away the customers. So I was like, I can't be around here. I have to be nearby. So okay. I spent a lot of time in my car, like on fake outs and stuff.
1: So, what was it like... A lot of money. Knowing that... Uh, what was it like... Did you ever feel guilty that... I mean, I know you were making these girls rich, but did you ever feel guilty for, like, exploiting them because... Yes, you gave them a percentage. And I know you were, you were talking, you, you talk about how um, it's better to give them a percentage than to take all of it. And I mean, I know you had these really entrepreneurs, you went about pimping in a very entrepreneurial manner. Uh, but did you ever feel guilty about uh, what you were encouraging these women to do?
2: At the time, no. It's like I tell people, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, People concentrate on the word trauma. What they don't concentrate on the word is poet. Did my uncle have nightmares about Vietnam while he was killing people? Not at all. He's in the moment. He has a job to do. If he stops to think, he gets killed. He's doing a good job. He's giving awards. They're laughing and giggling. It was only years after he came home that the alcoholism started when he looked back. See, I, I feel guilty sometimes now, but at the moment, no. If I'm in a boxing ring and my opponent is one of my best friends, I'm literally being paid to beat him almost to death with my hands. And he's like almost having brain damage, and I won't stop until the referee stops it. I'm still his friend. But years later, when you look back and he can't walk straight, he's like, I did that to somebody I care about for some money. But you don't think about it at the time. You're just boxing. It's just fun. You're hitting this guy as hard as you can, trying to give him permanent damage. That is your job. And this is a guy that you're not mad at. Most boxers are friends outside the ring. They get right into the ring and become sociopaths and like, that's my best friend. We grew up together. I'm about to break his neck because they're paying to see it. I mean, you don't think about it until after the fact. So, no, during the time, mm-hmm. never any guilt. Never. I would be dead if I hesitated one moment on anything that I was doing. It felt fun. Uh-huh. It felt natural. And I got a chance to really be myself.
1: Uh-huh. And then, actually, after that... um, well before we get after that was you you I know that your love is is really writing and then you got a chance to do that plus put that into movies um we're going to we're, we're we're next to we're a minute away from the next break but um maybe well I like the title of the book Pimping ain't easy but somebody's going to do it but but let's get to your um in the next segment let's get to your uh latest and most controversial book, I'm leaving you for a white woman because that has some um, very interesting psychological roots. <laughs> I'm not sure yeah. what you're saying, uh oh, but but that'll be good. All right. My guest is Mickey Royal. That is his pen name. His real name is Mikhail Sharif. Um and we are gonna get to his uh oh book. <laughs> Uh, I'm leaving you for a white woman, and then also talk about porn and and what you're doing today. Maybe working. At that's okay. that's going to be the bottom line. You're going to tell us about how you're working for Home Depot now. <laughs> we'll be right back. <laughs> yeah, right, Doctor Carol. <laughs> okay. <laughs>
0: Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman.
1: And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. We're talking today about what's love got to do with it. Pimp Game Series Author Tells All, and that is Mickey Royal. Um, we, uh, when, uh, when we just left, uh, the last segment, I mentioned that in this one, we're going to start with his most controversial book, which is, uh, I'm leaving you for a white woman. So tell us about that.
2: Yeah. Um, I'm, uh, can I first start with how I got my name, Mickey Royal? Sure. Because, uh, Mickey Royal is actually... A derivative, it's the American version of my real name. My first name is Mikael. And in school, and you're in America, they shorten your name. You know, they, they, so my name was Mick all the time. Nobody's going to say Mikael. That's three syllables. So they say, and hey, Mick, mm-hmm. all, whatever. So Gordon heard people calling me Mick. She started calling me Mick. And another girl started calling me Mickey because she thought Mick was just short for Mickey. That's not my name. Mm-hmm. It was, but they kept saying it over and over, so I started answering to it. And one day Gordon asked me, what does Sharif mean in English? I said, Royal. Royalty, and it's like mm. so. Your your American name is Nikki Royalty, and I said that sounds silly, and she said Nikki Royal. And I
1: said, hey, don't call. Hey, wait a
2: minute, I like that. Say that again. I said that's yeah, I am from yeah. now on, but it's really just the English okay. version of my real name.
1: That's interesting. Okay, now that you've uh, <laughs> that you've distracted us for a little while, get back to the. I'm leaving you for a white woman. <laughs> <laughs>
2: well, you're you're a psychiatrist, so you know I was deflecting. Because like you said, right. the other books have small <laughs> subjects in there like um, exploitation, murder, uh, this and the other. But when you talk about, I'm leaving you for a white woman, now that's controversial. That's the one that almost right, got my, right. my butt <laughs> 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 but
0: wounds. Right.
2: <laughs> but yeah, that story I got on a cruise, it was like 2006 or seven, And it was a guy sitting at the bar. And soon as I sat next to him, he started talking to me like I was a psychiatrist. And I only sat there five minutes. And I told him, I'm going to write a book about this, loosely based on you. He said, do what you want. Just tell the world about it. I don't give a damn. I said, I'm not going to use your name. And I might change up a few things to make it entertaining. But the core story is going to be yours. I said, what you just told me, I've heard before, many barbershops. It's something that black men talk about all the time until the opposite sex walks in the room. But when we're with each other. Like I said, barbershop, maybe the YMCA, because it's segregated. It's male and female. Not like 24-Hour Fitness or somewhere. All the men and women are together in the Uh same room. But at the Y, Uh the men are on one side and we're on the other. So it's nothing but men in there. This is what we talk about almost every day. This is what we talk about at the barbershop every freaking day until the opposite sex walks in. Then it's like, Uh dummy up. Don't say nothing. So I said, no, I need to expose this because there's a lot of men out there that are undergoing psychological and emotional abuse. And that's what it is. So the book is not about aesthetics. It's about attitude. It's about emasculation. You know, the more masculine your woman becomes, the more feminine you have to be. It works like a seesaw, you know? Mm So, I mean, Mae West and John Wayne wouldn't have gotten anywhere together. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, they're both alpha. That's not going to work. You know, Mae West would have to have a boy.
1: Uh,
2: John Wayne would have to have some kind of sugar baby. That's the only way that would work. Uh-huh. But their personality, they want to the conversation. And I wrote about it, and wherever I go, holding it up, it's always a group of black women who want to chase me with baseball bats. <laughs> and you yeah. know, I don't hit girls, so I got to run. <laughs> As I got to one too, You got to catch me first.
1: <sighs> so yes, why about, um, do black?
2: You said what? So why do black man. so explain the book. Well, the, what, a lot of black men are being verbally, psychologically, and emotionally abused at home. And the sad part, they don't know it because they came from single-parent homes with emaculating mothers. So they think, that they think this is love. I mean, if you reverse it and you have a father that's always calling you ugly, and it's just you and your father there, and you're a woman, then when you meet a man, because you relate your father to love, when you see a man, he goes, you're ugly. You're like, Oh God, I met Mr. Right. And that's what a lot of black men are doing. So they end up with these women who basically take the place of their mothers and they're just killing their masculinity. And he just got to the point where he was mad as hell, oh, I'm not going to take it anymore. And the white woman he met, it's not really an issue with her. It was just a new type of person that wasn't doing the things that he was used to. Now, when he says, I'm leaving you for a white woman, he's not leaving just his woman or his ex. He's leaving his mother. He's leaving his auntie. He's leaving his grandmother because he feels they're all in it together against him because they all come from single woman background and see men as an enemy. Well, he's a man. So if it's a bunch of sheep raising a baby wolf, they're going to, that wolf is grow go up to hate wolves. And it's just like with the gangs now, you know, the killing. If you catch these guys, Nine times out of ten, they didn't have a father. They grew up with a mother who hates men. And subconsciously, that's in their head. So you go out to destroy what you hate. Unfortunately, it looks at Waltz just like you. So it's, it's a, it, it creates almost a self-hatred. It's a real. It's almost a, a, It's a Norman Bates type of thing going on with his mother. And mm-hmm. that's the relationship they have with women. And once he noticed it, because he was in therapy, and then his therapist says, You're not the problem. She said, the stories you're telling me, because her name uh, was, I'm not going to put her name out there, but she was from India. And she said, I've never heard such things. And then when she started pointing out things to him, he saw, he was able, his vision was able to get clear. And then he met someone he loved and it worked. Now he was at the bar when I met him because the woman from his previous relationship was playing games with the visitation stuff. So he basically told me the whole story in about three minutes. And if he told me a five-minute story, I can make a 200-page book out of it. And I told him, I'm going to write this book. He said, be my guest. So I didn't put his name in it. I get clues to who he is, so if he reads it, but no. And it's very controversial, I, so I see.
1: Yeah. I mean, what, what's been the reaction? I mean, so, so obviously black women do not like this book. Um, but, but black men say, yeah, I get it. Right.
2: Oh, gosh. Black men have been my cheerleader. They said, finally, somebody stood up for us. We've been saying yes. this for so long, and nobody's been listening, and you put it in the forefront. Thank you. I'm like, okay, but, uh, yeah, give me a bulletproof vest while you're talking. But most, yeah, the younger black women who are still consider themselves on the market, those are the ones who hate it. Now, the ones 60 and above, like one recently, she said, I saw myself in this book. And I learned a lot. Mm-hmm. Now, I've gotten several compliments mm-hmm. from grandmothers like that. But mothers, oh, no, they want to shoot me. The women, like, 35 to 45, oh, no, 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 <laughs> they don't like it.
1: Yeah, they, just uh-huh, say was uh-huh.
2: they just said they don't like it. And they don't like me for writing it. And I'm always tell the truth. I'm always it the truth, no matter how, the, how bizarre they sound. I don't think he sat there and made that up. Not the way he was nursing that drink. <laughs> <laughs>
1: So, um, so now let's bring this back to you because, um, would you say that your mother was a typical black woman and do you think that she made you feel, um, emasculated?
2: Uh, she was, I think when my father left and her almost dying, you know how it is when things are being taken from you? Two months after I was born, her mother died. Six years later, her father died, so she's in her 20s, and then her husband left her. Then she had cancer. So here she is on her deathbed, no husband, no father, no mother, and a child she can't touch. A child can only look through her through glass for a few seconds every other month. So when she comes out of that, well, she's going to hold on tight to what she feels that that's all she has. So it creates that um, overbearing thing. To the point where the son who wants to be a man rebelled. So anything she says and does, he disagrees with, so it causes conflict in the house. Cause it's like, you're stunting my growth. I'm not going to grow up and be a woman. I'm going to grow up and be a man. I have to be around men. That means I have to be away from you. And it's to the point, And it was like, well, if you go away from me, you're going to leave me forever and die like everybody else does. You know, she was going through some things. So I became not just the apple of her eye. I became like the only diamond on the planet. And I, because of my personality, I didn't require such attention. I, used to, I told her one time when I was 12, why don't you pretend I died and leave me alone? <laughs> I just, I'm doing mm-hmm. something. I'm playing with my friends. I'm doing X, Y, and Z. I'm riding my bike. I don't need you right there all the time. So it, like I said, for, behind every serial male serial killer is an overbearing mother. You can go down the line. That's what the, the model cycle was built on. So, I mean, seriously. Mm-hmm, from him, mm-hmm. uh, what's his name, uh, Henry Lucas, uh, John Wayne Gacy still lives with his mother. Uh, I mean, you can just go down the line. It's a textbook. I told him, overbearing mothers either create homosexual sons who identify with her uh, femininity as
1: mm-hmm, strength, mm-hmm.
2: or they create serial killers. I think well, who subconsciously hate them. You know, so I think. That's what you create with that. So that's, I mean, that's how my mother was. And looking back on it, I understand, because she wasn't always like that. She got like that when those series of events happened in her life. But 10 years, it was like, you uh-huh.
1: know, she just
2: lost everybody and everything. And it's hard to that take care of me in the hospital for a year. That
1: must so the really economic re- situation Ugh. changed. Yeah. And so... That's when we enter what is known as the been... hood. <laughs> That must have been really incredibly bad, incredibly painful. Um, but to bring it back again to you, the, the same, what you said about how um, that a man who's a pimp really wants to control the men um, more than the women who are are uh, who he's pimping. Um, you know, that was the way also that you could control. It was these men were like your father. I mean, you must have been furious that your father left her. Uh, he was
2: still always coming in and out. I didn't blame neither one because I was too young for me. It was too, that was adult stuff. I couldn't process that. I just know I was excited to see him whenever he showed up. And it was like a Santa Claus situation. But then I got right. tired of him showing up because I knew he have to leave. He's like, okay, mm-hmm. you're here for two days, but there's going to come a time where you get into the car and drive off and I stand there and cry. And I don't want to stand there and cry. Mm-hmm. Therefore, when you come by to see me, I'm going to be down the street. And he didn't understand why I was avoiding him. I'm not avoiding you, seeing you. I'm going to avoid seeing you leave eventually,
0: mm-hmm, which is going to mm-hmm. bother me.
2: So he took it the wrong way. He was like, well, you don't want to see me, then I'm not going to force myself upon the kid. So you just got to be married, had other, uh, other children. went off about his life.
1: And so controlling these men who you supplied the girls to was a way of controlling him, getting him not to leave. You got, yeah, the well. men, you, you got these men hooked on these women. And um so it was a way of keeping them, unlike you were able to do it's with like, your father.
2: It's like my my, my women could get places I can't go. There are um VIP parties, Hollywood parties, that if I came to the door, they would laugh. Might hand me car keys to parker car. But see these women I brought with me. You know, from Sweden, from uh France, uh from Uganda. From all over the world, all over the city, every race man their city, See, they get invited in. So they can go up there and deal with the power players. I'm not allowed in that room because I'm not what they want. Mm-hmm. So I thought early on mm-hmm. during that time that they could be used as worms to catch big fish. You know, and mm-hmm. I saw it as a weakness for these men. I said, some people are addicted to cocaine, some aren't. Some people are addicted to heroin, some aren't. Every man walking is addicted to the product I sell. So I don't care if he's a drug dealer <laughs> or a politician, which I have service both. I don't care if he's an actor, a, a football star, a bus driver. You're going to see me at the end of the night. And you're going to bring me mm-hmm. a percentage of everything you made. Because I have what you're addicted to by nature is what I sell, something yes. you can't refuse. If you could, it wouldn't be 8 billion yes. people on the planet. It was fixed when I was growing yes. up.
1: <laughs> yes. Yes absolutely so you re- you, re- you re you were able to reel them in and um I unfortunately have to reel you in at this time because uh it's the end of the time of the show, but this has been really fascinating and um again, my guest has been Mickey Royal, um which is the uh Eng- the the English version of his name Mikhail. And, um, and uh, the books, I, I told you, the books are in the description on of the, uh, the show. And obviously, you, I'm sure you have tit- titillated a lot of people to go actually read these books. So thank you so much um, for sharing, for you sharing for your me. life, the, for sharing the life and your life with us. And thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman.